Hello, and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens. In today's episode, we're taking a look at the intersection between technology and security in urban landscapes. Over half of the world's population lives in cities, and new technologies like smart cities or surveillance tech have increasingly been leveraged to make life in cities safer and more efficient. Part of this equation is leveraging technology to combat crime and terrorism, to respond to natural disasters, or to improve the quality of life of citizens. New technologies are also starting to play a role in the political landscapes of cities by connecting people in greater ways in protest movements, for example. But technologies can also be leveraged to other ends, to suppress protesters and to restrict freedom of speech. And there are some questions as to whether technologies like smart cities really do impact on, say, tackling urban crime. So how does technology impact urban security and the democratic landscapes of cities? With me today to discuss this topic is my colleague, Dr. Samir Puri, and my former colleague and podcast host, Antonio Sampao. Samir is the WIWS Senior Fellow in Urban Security and Hybrid Warfare, based in the WIWS Asia office in Singapore. He's responsible for furthering research within the WIWS on hybrid warfare, urban security, and armed conflict. Samir has a background working in government and academia, and recently published a chapter titled Urban Security Challenges in Asia in the 2021 Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment. Antonio is Senior Analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, where he examines urban armed conflict and non-state armed groups and their impact on governance and security. He also studies conflict economies and the roles of cities in wars. Prior to his current role, Antonio worked at the WIWS within the Conflict Security and Development Program in London for nine years. Antonio and Samir, welcome back onto the show. Thank you very much for having us, Maya. Thanks, Maya. Good to be back. Samir, technology seems to be a constant topic of discussion these days and impacts nearly every aspect of our lives. So why is it worth talking about the intersection between technology and urban security? The urbanization in the world is something that's carrying on at pace. This is probably the first part of the equation. More people live in cities now than have ever lived, or in cities uh, or in other sorts of urban spaces. And at the same time, the penetration of the internet and the ubiquity of smartphones, again, something that's you know almost so close to our daily lives, we failed to notice it, is creeping up ever more. And this is perhaps more pronounced in regions of the world in which rural to urban transitions and technology penetration have actually had quite a longer uh, journey to make in a shorter space of time. And as we talk about, as we'll talk about a little bit later on, the, the region I'm focusing on, the Asia Pacific, these two trends of urbanization and internet penetration are, are really pronounced. What does that mean for security? Well, there are lots of technologies that we're now routinely seeing that are designed to optimize efficient urban living. Really simple things such as the smartphone apps we have in some countries, a provision of government services uh, through apps, through sort of arms nets, technological connections with citizens. Uh, it's a potential for these to be dual use technologies. Uh, potentially usable in, in whether social control by the government or whether organizing protests against the government. So we've got one sort of theme, which is protesting. But on the other hand, we've also got the ability to develop modern technology specifically with the aim of creating insecurity, whether that's through theft, whether that's through uh, denial of service attacks and so on and so forth. But the barriers to entry are dropping. The ubiquity is increasing. And just a number of people around the world that these themes are relevant for is always on an upward trajectory. Antonio, is what Samir just outlined limited to megacities of Asia, or do we also see similar trends in other parts of the world? It's definitely not uh, restricted to Asia, and in fact, it has really become a, a global concern. This is often linked with China's 
sort of Belt and Road Initiative and the aggressive um, unveiling of the smart cities and safe cities packages that uh, come accompanied with it, the concerns around them, the most controversial aspects of these marriage of technology and urban security come really in countries where the political system is not democratic or is not as trusted by its citizens as in in more fully democratic countries in in the West, especially. So, uh, for instance, in Africa, uh, Uganda, for instance, has been a particular uh, nexus, a particular hub of of, of concerns because of allegations and, and, and investigations by the Wall Street Journal in 2019 that the country had used technology from Huawei to spy on a political opponent of the president, uh, a popular singer, actually, who was also a presidential candidate. And in 2020, protests against president's attempt to to stay in power. There was another media reports about about the use of of such like surveillance and camera uh, technologies to mark and track protesters who had participated in that. Um, And in fact, in many developed countries, this is also controversial with the Black Lives Matter protests and and movement in the United States, discussions around the bias and the deployment of these technologies in areas uh, that that are majority black. This has been a a real debate and and many supporters of the technology, of the benefits of of using this technology or, or surveillance and AI enabled sort of um, technologies in, in cities, even they sometimes recognize that as of now, the technology has some bias, uh, and in some cases, a lot of bias towards uh, communities that have, you know, historically been affected by police violence or more police sort of uh, presence in, in their areas um, and have been arrested and incarcerated more. It is difficult to disentangle these technological, technocratic sort of debates from the societal divisions and and controversies. That's really interesting. Maybe before we move on, I was wondering whether one of you could explain to our listeners, what is the difference between a smart city and a safe city project? Antonia, you mentioned it already, but um, I, I think it might be useful to unpack what that actually is and what it includes. The first thing to say is that these terms tend to be highly marketing jargon. It's really not a, a, a political or a social concept that comes from, you know, sociology or has a, it, it really is, you know, it originates from a commercial uh, point of view from companies and, and countries that with good intentions, sometimes, you know, with dubious intentions, but of providing a package of services. And there is an enormous demand for this type of thing because there are thousands of municipalities out there in the world, you know, uh, many of which with problems of crime and terrorism. This type of of, of technology really, really speaks to them. But um, the term smart city usually refers to a city or or a package of services that uh, connect urban services and functions such as traffic lights and, you know, uh, buildings and uh, um, the management of, of, you know, even sewage and and, and, uh, street lights and, 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 you know, the basic elements of street life connected 
in a way that is more efficiently connected to um, to, to the urban municipality, to the, to the urban government. Whereas safe cities is um, often, very often, part of the smart cities package, but speaks more to the the security elements against crime and against sometimes and increasingly now uh, in terms of counterterrorism as well. It usually refers to surveillance cameras, now increasingly AI-enabled facial recognition technologies, really a, a package of, 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 of services that are connected and controlled by, and that, that's the key part, they, you know, inevitably it is controlled by governments, be them local, um, usually local, but in the case of the African c- countries that I, I, I managed that are semi-authoritarian, sometimes authoritarian, you know, also linked to national security infrastructure that causes concern to activists. I would just add very quickly that whilst there might be quite a lot of technology that only the governments control, at the same time, citizens and consumers are also empowered by their own consumer technology as well, which is marched forward in a, at a very quick rate and sometimes actually outstrips or is able to somehow balance against the capabilities that uh, are being procured at the national level as well. And just for our listeners' understanding, safe cities is a term used uh, most prominently by Huawei for its products related to surveillance technologies. Is there any evidence that these technologies like smart cities and, and safe cities actually make urban environments safer against crime, for example? Do they have that positive impact that's been alluded to? Well, of course, that depends on how you define crime. It's interesting you mentioned Huawei just then, because of course, if you're Sitting in the Chinese government, you define crime in ways that would certainly relate to certain types of protesting. You'd certainly be very concerned around expressions that could be interpreted as supporting separatism. These are all crimes that are actually quite keenly felt in that part of the world, which in other parts of the world wouldn't necessarily register as a crime. But in terms of the everyday countering of crime, you're talking about the sort of theft, extortion, burglary, these sorts of things. Well, to the extent that police force or uh, local authorities have got access to more tightly knit together CCTV services, or they have greater eavesdropping ability, whatever it is that they that they're empowered with, that's on the one hand, it might reduce the investigation speeds. It might mean that fewer people are required to trawl through CCTV footage if there's an AI algorithm that's able to scan it for, for facial recognition, these sorts of things. But at the same time, there's always the thing with modern technology and these advancements is, is for as much as it sort of allows for the authorities to achieve security, it increases sort of the attack vectors and the sort of the vulnerabilities of the systems as well, because it allows for, for potential wrongdoers many more ways of, of actually seeking to seeking to engage in theft, seeking to spread hateful messages, however that's de- defined or determined by the government in question. So there's, it, I wouldn't say it's an arms race, Mayor, it's, but it is, does sort of feel as if uh, for every advancement that's made on the one side, there's always going to be a new technology, a new app. Uh, something that maybe is developed by a startup, something that's accessible in another jurisdiction that the internet allows you to reach outside of your borders and pull into the debates or the or the situation you have in your own country that might then uh, accrue an advantage for, for those who are seeking to perpetrate crimes. Again, with a caveat, it depends on how crimes are defined. And Antonio, do we also see the limitations of the positive impact of these technologies on crime in, in some of the work that you've covered? The effectiveness of these technologies, especially the AI elements of them, the facial recognitions, the the ones that are currently discussed as the most sort of exciting ones and and also the most concerning ones, um, the sort of facial facial recognition uh, technologies, they, they, they are still in tests. So, for instance, in the city 
where I'm speaking to you from London, it is currently trialing a service provided by NEC for facial recognition, live tracking of faces, you know, in the crowd from CCTV cameras, matching those faces with a database of wanted suspects or people in the counter-terrorist sort of watch list. In fact, some of the articles that have come out citing some of the activists and experts that are following this process, the evidence is that it has not been very successful. The, The success rate is not very impressive so far. But it might be because it is still in trial and it might not be calibrated to the types of sort of ethnicities. There were some some concerns also in the US that some facial recognition technology was not very efficient in tracking people with uh, black ethnicities. There are all these all these differences, and that allows the defendants of, of this technology to say, no, this is being corrected and is still in, in trial phase. The potential is that it, it might help people in the police and also in the justice, criminal justice system to make better decisions. So, for instance, in the West, predictive technology that follows data according to locations and and profile of of, of people helps the criminal justice system, or so is the argument, that uh, helps judges and other criminal justice people to uh, make better decisions about parole for for suspects and for for people in prison to, you know, whether they they are likely to, to, to commit crime again. And then the preoccupations around bias and the fact that black populations have been much more followed by the police uh, and by the criminal justice system, that the technologies, the databases will tell the software that the, the people in those communities will commit more crime. So this sort of bias is is inherent to, to the process. So it is really difficult to say, you know, it has been effective, it has not been effective. I guess it, it's a matter of taking extreme caution towards the the sort of human bias that get into into the, the the system. But here we're talking about developed nations, but what about emerging economies or developing economies where the judiciary might not be as strong, where law enforcement might not be as connected or as organized? I mean, what about all the other elements around technology? How do they make a difference to whether this technology is used for a certain intent or successful for a certain purpose or not? The promises of these technologies, of safe cities uh, technologies, they are greater at the areas I think I could I could describe as sort of petty crimes, such as car theft, robberies, the, the whole concept of clustering crime into areas and following location-based crime. So a database telling the police that this particular area has been uh, afflicted by crime, by a certain type of crime that has been rising. The occurrences of car theft in this very small area has been rising over the past few weeks. So it's likely that you know people will uh, commit more of these crimes in the, in the near future in that area. So I will dedicate more of my sort of police vehicles and resources to that area. So it greatly helps police agencies to make better administrative and you know resource allocation decisions. What is not, especially in developing cities, developing country cities, what is not so clear is whether this type of technology will help them in the more structural, really difficult uh, problems of security from a sort of a social political sphere, in the sense that these cities are really split into areas of, you know, middle class and, and, and wealthy areas, low income areas that have historically been sort of excluded and marginalized from public services, from opportunities, economic opportunities, etc. In terms of the, the sort of 
parallel sort of forms of power and, and, and governance that appear in those in those areas in the form of gangs, vigilantes, militias. Um, the case of Latin America, for instance, in, in the case of Rio, some smart city technologies were implemented uh, in connection to the Olympic Games, really has done nothing to help the historical sort of uh, divisions that affect the cities and the fact that gangs effectively control some some aspects of life in the in the favelas so these social rifts it is not clear at all how you know smart cities uh, safe cities solutions might might help with that samir you mentioned that technologies like smart cities also increase threat vectors so do you think that the increasing digital connectivity of urban environments through the internet of things also poses new threats to cities like cyber attacks thus potentially making urban environments more vulnerable to new forms of insecurity? By way of answering that question, Mayor, as an interesting counterpoint to Antonio, I'm sitting in Singapore, the IISS Asia office, and Singapore often tops the smart cities index lists as being, just in terms of civilian and sort of citizen technology, as being one of the most densely interconnected urban spaces that there is on the face of the planet, which is perhaps no surprise if you've ever visited Singapore. It is, of course, a city-state. It doesn't have large rural areas uh, to connect to. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly accelerated the association between urban development and smart city connectivity. This is just everyday life for for all of the listeners, because you can imagine the emphasis it's placed on linking, for example, public health services and cities to, to citizens and being able to allow citizens to work effectively without leaving their homes if they're so able to do so. And cities and spaces that have uh, the infrastructure to allow for that, of course, have not so much prospered, but able to weather the pandemic storm. Now, the sort of vulnerabilities to all of this, in some respects, this is still a story that's developing as, as history unfolds, because, I mean, the internet is still astonishingly new. I know it sounds like a very strange thing to say, but it's only 20 years or thereabouts since you know, we, we started going from dial-up to, to broadband. And it's barely a dozen years since the smartphone started to become more ubiquitous consumer technology. So we're still, as a species, we're still learning as we go in terms of understanding how deep those vulnerabilities are. You know, nary a day goes by where you don't learn of another cyber attack against some sort of infrastructure in your country or a neighboring country or somewhere. And, you know, we're getting to the stage now where understanding what a tolerable level of cyber hacking, of of interference, of attempted theft, of moments of extortion that maybe either succeed partially or succeed fully, and yet the service is denied, then it sort of restarts, sort of stop start. It's a new phenomenon, and websites going down, websites coming back up, all this sort of thing is is something that we we take in our strides generally. And then every now and again, something like the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack takes effect and then all of a sudden you do stop and you think well this is actually important of how large this could be so of course you know, no one can predict how bad this will get and i'm sure if you're designing uh, smart city systems and infrastructure that's heavily reliant on the internet of things you'll need to do a couple of things firstly is is protect it against cyber attacks but next build in redundancy so that there is almost an expectation that uh, there may be an attempt to deny service or an interruption of service. And and finally, a very good uh, sort of observation came out of a recent IISS uh, event, which I won't go into, talked about manual labor skills. So building the redundancy in especially infrastructure to be able to allow a phys- an engineer to physically go to a terminal, restart a system, or perhaps even engage in a very low-tech alternative way of allowing the system to function. Because of course, we can all imagine in, in our dystopian collective imaginations 
of, you know, God forbid, a hospital or other sorts of critical pieces of city infrastructure being brought to a total standstill. And because it's everyone's of such a, gener a new generation that they don't even remember how to go back to paper records. They don't remember how to wind the hand crank metaphorically to get things back uh, up and running it just isn't possible. But that's a curious bifurcation, almost from the highest end of technological accomplishment, almost back to the lowest end of sort of rudimentary elbow grease, just get things going again in the most rudimentary way. You're listening to Sound Strategic, and I'm joined today by Samir Puri and Antonio Sampao to discuss how emerging technologies have impacted the security landscapes of urban environments. Samir, you recently wrote a IISS strategic comments article on the changing landscape of pro-democracy protesters in Asia. How have protest movements in Asia leveraged technology and has it made protesting in Asian cities easier? Well, this is a really interesting real-world event that's sort of been breaking out for the last couple of years. Uh, listeners will be very aware of the Hong Kong protest 2019 to 2020, but also the Thai student protest that started in, in 2020. And of course, the Myanmar protests against the coup uh, began after the 1st February 2021 coup. So in three different spots across the sort of the broader sort of Southeast and East Asian region, we've got these mass protest movements that are taken to the streets, totally disconnected reasons, and they're totally separate protests. I'm not saying that they're linked in any other way. Technology has, has done a couple of things for these protests. Firstly, it's, it's enabled the protesters to mobilize, utilizing sort of the, the language of the sort of millennial Gen Z generation, the flash mob, which just simply means coordinating your movements to you know, con converge in a particular spot and then to engage in protesting activity or maybe playing music, maybe giving speeches, whatever you're doing to express your discontent with the political regime. And this isn't new necessarily. Thinking back across the, the, sort of the history of the smartphone, you know, 2009 in Iran, the Green Movement, uh, 2011, the Arab Spring, also 2011, the Occupy Wall Street Movement. Uh, all that sort of, I think, immediately showed the world the mobilization power of, of the internet, of social media in particular, and Facebook. But, you know, it's 12 years and things have moved on. And some of the young people protesting in, in East and Southeast Asia in the countries I mentioned, they won't remember the Arab Spring. You know, they were probably seven or eight years old. They're now 18, 19. This is, so where they're at now is being able to utilize apps such as Clubhouse, which the Thai government moved to ban uh, because Clubhouse, uh, which is effectively hosts like sort of, imagine Hyde Park Speakers Corner, but for the internet, for, for you listeners who don't quite know what it is. And it's just the ability of someone to host a, a small discussion seminar and then have other netizens sort of beam in and join them. But some Thai dissidents uh, from uh, sort of exiled living outside, one in, living in Japan, in fact, assembled a clubhouse event for these student protesters who were protesting against uh, the influence of the military in, in Thai politics and uh, sort of the widely publicized hedonism of, of the king who took power in 2016. Uh, other things that they felt brought shame and, and brought, uh, sort of brought an air of unwanted authoritarianism to Thailand. So that's just one quick example. But just to round off, I think something that's really striking is just the figures on internet penetration, social media usage. And this is, I think, quite, quite striking because when you see these over the years, they just go up and up and up. And now in Hong Kong, 92% of, of citizens have got access, regular access to the internet. Taiwan, it's 90% where a lot of Hong Kong protesters fled to. Uh, when they were when the national security law descended after the Beijing authorities and uh, the SAR authorities brought this in in 2021. Thailand, it's just under 70% internet penetration. 
and even in Myanmar, where you know the urbanisation is not as far advanced, it's it's forty three percent. But this is almost doubled compared to just around a decade ago. Those aren't the exact statistics. But they more or less paint uh, paint sort of a mental image as to how many more people have access to the internet on a daily basis. And I think as a concluding thought on this, some listeners might be aware of the Milk Tea Alliance. It's a hashtag, hashtag Milk Tea Alliance. And the hashtag was created by Twitter in response to protesters from Hong Kong, Myanmar, some exiled protesters in Taiwan, and certainly Thailand as well, to use this hashtag to create a sense of online solidarity around this very loose notion of agitating against authoritarian rule. Does it really have any effect on the ground? Not really, but it does change the challenge for authoritarian governments, which is, well, you can extinguish the protests in the streets, and then, God forbid, in Myanmar, you can shoot and kill protesters in the most brutal of fashion, but you can't extinguish the embers of discontent as they continue to sort of smolder online. And, you know, this is unprecedented, even uh, sort of 10, 15 years ago, as a way of keeping protest movements going. But of course, presumably, if protesters can use apps and technologies to organize themselves, the institutions and governments that they're protesting against can similarly use these technologies for the benefit of cracking down on these protests. And that's something, of course, that we saw as early as 2009 with regards to the green movement in Iran. So how do you see the tools of local oppression having to keep up? That's, of course, the, the, the yin to the yang in, in this argument is, is the response. And a couple of very interesting examples, one from the Hong Kong protests and then one from Thailand to answer this question. Hong Kong, the authorities realised that, of course, so many of the apps that were being used by the protesters were not indigenous to Hong Kong or China. They were designed and proliferated by tech companies from abroad. And one in particular, HK Live Map, was uh, was apparently very useful to try to plot the physical movements of the police juxtaposed with the protesters, again, assembling sort of as flash mobs or maybe standing sort of uh, standing Occupy style protests in a in a city centre. Apple, interestingly, ended up responding to the to downloading of HK Live Map onto Apple uh, sort of devices by banning it from their app store. Now, that meant uh, that you could still download it onto Android devices. But Tim Cook uh, issued a memo internally to Apple colleagues, which was then publicized in the LA Times, I think, which he said that, well, we're taking this off our apps, app store because we understand it's being used to, to target and to physically assault police in Hong Kong. Not saying I'm siding with the Chinese government, simply saying it's a party to, to some sort of violent counteractions and, uh, against the Hong Kong police. Very interesting. But that just is a, a microcosm illustration. Of if there is a protest in a, in a country, it may have to reach outside of its jurisdiction to ask the tech companies to either remove access or to limit access. It may not necessarily be able to do it so effectively inside its own jurisdiction, unless it has a very strong uh, ability to control the internet. And uh, one final example from Thailand. Uh, There, the authorities are very slow, I think, to get into 21st century thinking. They are still trying to reach out to the protesters by assembling town hall style sessions. So these are not violent protests, as they have been in Hong Kong, and certainly as they have been in Myanmar. They've certainly been very passionate, but we haven't seen that sort of violence in Thailand. So there's still the ability to go out have a dialogue with the students. Um, but this is so old fashioned, I think for an 18, 19 year old today, having someone with the military badge coming out and asking you, what's your what's your grievance? 
isn't really what you want. What you want is a real-time ability to convey that in real-time short responses. Uh, the Thai military, as was exposed by Reuters, uh, was then caught in a very sort of cack-handed way of starting Twitter accounts, hundreds of Twitter accounts, assigned to different Thai military uh, sort of psyops units to try to uh, propagate pro-royalist messages. But the impression one gets from the way this was reported and exposed, and indeed reported by the Thai protesters, is that the Thai authorities really weren't in the 21st century. They're very much playing catch-up, and perhaps it's a more it's an older demographically and a more hierarchical uh, sort of structure. But this is all, all in flux, and one would expect that the tools of repression will move as fast in their own direction as the tools of self-expression and of street protests. And really, this is one of the battlegrounds of a sort of protesting and, and, and sort of authoritarianism uh, for, for this generation going forward. The concerns around these technologies and surveillance are indeed stronger and, and more perhaps more relevant in, in, in uh, authoritarian or semi-authoritarian countries that we, we've covered, you know, in China, in Africa. These technologies, this package of technologies, their repercussions for social uh, liberties include even some of the largest, most prominent democracies in the world. So, for instance, in the West, during the Black Lives Matter protests, this sort of surveillance and violation of privacy uh, in terms of protests was present even in the West. And sometimes not due to political interference, but solely due to the you know inherent sort of uh, uh, violations of privacy in the systems that we, we've discussed. So for instance, in the US, many police agencies and municipalities have something called predictive policing technologies. So as I, as I said before, they uh, analyze areas in terms of, oh, this area has been affected by more crimes, then, you know, we should be vigilant about that area. Or sometimes individuals who have, you know, past uh, involvements with the police or past, you know, cases of drunkenness or something like that. And in the Black Lives protest movement, because many protesters were arrested and, you know, fired by the police, now these predictive policing systems will believe that they are more prone to commit crimes and they are, you know, going to get into the mapping of that uh, sort of crime software more more often be- because of that. Many campaigners, many uh, agencies and 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 charities that are that are you know campaigning against this type of technology they cite that as a, as a way of saying that you know in democratic countries there is no way of really achieving a purely technocratic and efficient way of these crime mapping situations and, and technologies because they have an inherent bias you know and they they reflect the, the inequalities that exist in our societies and the case of the black lives matter is, is an example in which you know there is a social tension a social conflict in a certain area and that spills over and there is no way of telling the software that um or at least currently there is no way of telling them that look this is sort of a, of an exception or is, is it a profoundly divisive issue and we need to to handle it more carefully. Samir, the million dollar question, of course, is whether the source of this technology matters. Does it matter who designs it, who manufactures it, and who sells it? And it wouldn't be a surprise, of course, to our audience that this is a poorly veiled question about the role of Chinese technology in all of this and whether it matters that smart cities or safe cities are manufactured by Chinese companies. Yeah, and I'd also add, uh, as we're, we're recording this and having this conversation not long after the NSO uh, revelations around uh, the uh, sort of the, the diffusion of eavesdropping software. So there are quite a few different sources. Um, I'd say, from my perspective, in terms of urban security, urban unrest, protests, suppression, all these sorts of themes, 
I'd say it's not necessarily only who provides the software and, and the technology. It's also whether uh, the country seals its internet and its technology away from sort of externally produced softwares and, and technologies as well. And this sort of decoupling of technological procurement is one of the most interesting themes. Certainly, we've seen it in the national security realm where in Western countries, and certainly the Americans have pushed for no use of Huawei or Chinese technology in defense infrastructure. And they've pushed that as a, as a sort of a, a, a request to their allies. Some have abided by it, others have not. But at a more mundane sort of civilian citizen level, um, I think there's actually, uh, there's almost going to be no, no way of stopping people from having apps and technologies that have got their roots in foreign technology companies and not really be able to seal it off. So I think when it comes down to uh, sort of enforcing societal control, uh, the extent to which you actually do prevent uh, the, the acquisition of technologies, even consumer technologies from abroad, it might actually be one of the decisive factors. Don't rule out a future in which buy local technology becomes a widely seen consumer banner. I still remember things like buy British beef in a very different sort of mundane sort of thing, but buy local technology because it's safer could well be something that consumers start to see in, in years and decades to come. I'm thinking here of the geopolitical complications um, that start at a local level. And this uh, trend towards safe cities and smart cities really gives municipalities a say or a role in national security that they've never really had. So, for instance, uh, we see in African cities and in many European cities even, you know, that Huawei and uh, other Chinese companies that have really been at the forefront technologically and uh, commercially of these surveillance technologies and softwares, that cities, you know, start using them because they are, you know, more efficient, they've been in the market for longer, they have better track record, etc., for really technical purposes. And they do come with some technocratic promises of, you know, more efficient, safer, you know, they talk about crime and terrorism, that it's not really about political surveillance. So they, they adopt them through the, the, the sort of technical um, track records in terms of fighting crime, tracking crime, etc. However, when these geopolitical tensions, uh, especially involving China and Western countries, really have scaled up over the past few years, what are the implications of really having cities adopting lots and lots and, and, and building their safe cities mechanisms interwoven with Chinese technology and Chinese providers, whereas their national governments are trying to, you know, prepare themselves and, and, and sort of design the, 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 the national security away from China or sometimes even in opposition to China. What are the, the implications for municipal versus federal sort of interactions in the, in the public security realm? And in the case of developing countries that have been, especially Africa, there has been sort of a, a stage for geopolitical competition. Does the fact that many cities have gone for Chinese technology, does that give China an edge? And how should Western governments sort of respond? And uh, I, I, I'm going to give my five cents sort of take on that. I think that the advantage for the West from what I see is that it, it comes with better promises of transparency and, you know, linkage to democratic governments. And I think the more that Western countries, democratic countries do that at home in terms of, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests and all that surveillance uh, and tackle those lack of transparency that we've been discussing with these technologies, the, the better that these governments will be in terms of competing with China for these safer cities sort of mechanisms. We at the IISS are currently 
working on China Connect, a project to map China's global digital investments and projects, including safe cities and smart cities. And the thing that you mentioned, Antonio, about a policy disconnect between various levels of government and how to deal with foreign technologies is something that is reflected in the data that we've collected. But I'm afraid we've run out of time and there's much more to discuss. So I want to thank you both for coming on the show. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with both of you in the future. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for having us. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.